0: This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. It seems everyone is talking up gas expansion as a solution to ending the climate crisis. This week, Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King said Australia needs to remain an essential supplier of gas, while also playing up the controversial yet unproven method of carbon capture and storage, often referred to as CCS. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has gone even harder, telling the gas industry to fight for their future and brush off Labor's renewable zealotry. All the while, scientists say the world is certain to experience record temperatures this year. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Live News Editor Patrick Keneally about why gas is not the answer to our net zero ambitions. It's Friday the 19th of May.
1: Selling a little or a lot?
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees.
0: Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Patrick. Morning, Gabs. Lenore, why do we need to talk about gas?
2: because we're losing the plot on climate and energy policy again again, I thought our cognitive dissonance on energy policy was over, or at least kind of diminishing, but apparently not. It seems to be resurfacing at least to some extent in both major parties, but you know more in the coalition. So basically, instead of losing our collective minds over coal, we're losing it over gas. It all came to a head this week at a big conference by APIA, the Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, where everyone was giving speeches apparently based on the assumption that we could keep both using and exporting gas indefinitely, like for in the very long term, exploring for gas, developing new gas fields. They were talking about gas as a transition fuel, but it was as if that transition could take decades and decades And, you know, it was very contentious to say otherwise, at the same time as the World Meteorological Organization is saying temperatures are likely to rise by more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels in the next five years, maybe not permanently, but even doing it for a while is catastrophic. So it's like there's this complete disconnect again between the debate in Australia and the science of what's happening
0: Patrick, Madeleine King, the Federal Resources Minister, was at the APIA conference that Lenore talked about and she said Australia's future domestic gas needs will not be met through existing sources of supply. What do you say to that?
3: It's just patently not true. There is so much gas being produced now. We have enough gas to last hundreds of years if we were just using it for domestic purposes. And even as a transition fuel, it's not being used for electricity generation even as much as it was being used 10 years ago. So the amount being used is actually less than 10 years ago. It's half of that because it's expensive to run and it's got more expensive... So energy economists out there are saying gas is not the transitional fuel that it's being made out to be. Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's not a transition fuel for baseload power. Like Pat says, Mm. it's a transition fuel for that sort of peaking power, like when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining Mm. and you need a a quick boost of power, that's when those peaking plants work. So you don't need much gas for that.
3: And even for that purpose, batteries are often more cost effective Mm. um, because gas peaker plants take a while to kick in. Um, fire up. And for that really quick demand response, batteries are a much better option in many cases. But
2: Madeline King is still saying the pathway to net zero runs through the Australian resources sector and the Northern Territory government has just approved the new gas reserve in the Beedaloo Basin, which has a thousand times the current annual domestic consumption in Australia in its reserves. It will be in production for 40 years or more. I mean, this disconnect between these things is just insane.
3: Yeah, just to give you an idea, like Beetaloo Basin has 500 trillion cubic feet of gas reserves in there. So when you're comparing that to other gas fields that are in operation already, just to give you an idea of the scale of it, so the Surat Basin, which is full of gas wells in Queensland at the moment, is is 10 trillion cubic feet of gas there. You know, in Bath Strait, throughout the whole production of that, which has fuel energy consumption for Australia's southeast for, for decades... In its whole time, that's exported eight trillion cubic feet to the Australian yeah. East Coast market. Mm. So, you know, there is more gas there than, than we could ever use domestically.
2: Mm. And exports are predicted to decline over time as well. So, I mean, part of the reason that governments are so desperate to try to tie themselves in knots to you know, assert a long-term future for the gas industry is that it is really lucrative for Australia right now. But that isn't forecast to be the case in the long-term future either. And you know, the IEA's executive director said in 2021 that if we were serious about the climate crisis, there could be no new investments in oil, gas and coal from then. And we're talking about new investments that will produce into the twenty sixties and the twenty seventies.
3: But it's okay because Madeline King said we're going to have CCS and put ah, it, all the carbon emissions underground. He does.
0: So, My next question: yeah. mm. Let's talk about CCS, Patrick.
3: So this is the, the zombie that absolutely just you know you, you cannot kill it with a silver stake or, or any any other way. Madeline King said that CCS, which governments in Australia and overseas have poured billions of dollars into and has failed to deliver on its promises, will actually be a solution and will get there by removing regulatory hurdles and providing regulatory certainty for the industry. You know, it hasn't happened with all the subsidies and, you know, money that we've piled into before, but it is going to happen now. And she pointed to Santos's project at Mumba, which apparently is almost ready to get under operation as a, you know, shining example of this.
2: To start with, though, that's only going to sequester the emissions, the fugitive emissions from the extraction of the gas. It doesn't do anything about the emissions created when the gas is burned. I mean, CCS might be a useful technology at the margins, you know, for hard to abate industries like cement and steel making and that sort of things. It might have uses, but it isn't a get out of jail free card. It doesn't mean you can just keep using fossil fuels forever and ever and, you know, bury the nasty stuff under the ground. It doesn't work like that. And even the places where we're trying to use it, so Chevron's Gorgon project off the West Australian coast is supposed to be our big flagship project. That's the one that should be an easier situation for CCS to work because they're taking the fugitive emissions and put them straight back down under the sea, like right there. They're not piping them anywhere or anything. And even then, its emissions have increased 50% is operating at about a third of its capacity. You know, we've been pouring money into CCS because obviously if it worked, that would be terrific. We could continue to export fossil fuels till the cows come home and there wouldn't be consequence. It'd be excellent, except it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work as magic fairy dust to sort of get out of the global heating problem. And, you know, since I think Kevin Rudd set up the CCS Institute there's been, as Pat says, so much money put into it and if it's going to be useful, it's going to be useful at the margins. It is not going to allow for a long-term future for fossil fuels in the way that is being implied by a lot of what the politicians are saying.
3: Also, there's this new idea out here now as well that it's going to be used for hydrogen. So it's fine. We can keep on taking gas out of the ground crack it, split it, create hydrogen for an export market and then put the emissions back underground. Alan Finkel was out there this week talking about it. But again, it's never been demonstrated to be cost effective and if there's any application to it, as Lenore says, I think it's going to be at the margins.
0: If only we had other solutions. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) we do. It's not just CCS, though, is it? Some politicians around, not just in Australia, but around the world, are kind of there's this tech evangelism that technology will come along soon and save us. How do we kind of interrogate those kind of claims? Well,
3: I think there's some really exciting things going on in technology for sure, like what, you know, new battery technology, new EV technology, new ways of storing energy. But at the same time, what we need right now and what the, you know, every international organisation has said is we need the rapid and large-scale deployment of already proven technologies like wind and solar. And we have the technology right now to deliver it. It's just a matter of doing it at scale and having the political will. And, you know, for some developing countries, the capital to deliver this technology and the rollout of it.
0: And, Lenore, what's happening in Labor? Because while Madeleine King was out there saying all this, Ed Hoosick, on the other hand, was saying, you know, well, we can't really rely on CCS.
2: Uh, Yeah, he did. He said it wasn't, he said basically what we were just saying, that it hasn't worked at scale and that the government should prioritise investments in wind and solar because that would give them better bang for buck. I couldn't agree more. So I think, you know, Labor's struggling with it a bit. I think on the one hand they're doing some quite good things in climate policy. The safeguard mechanism is a start to actually reduce emissions. They're doing some good things, but they can't quite accept the consequence of where climate policy will take the long-term future of fossil fuel industries, and that goes for the territory government in the Northern Territory that just approved the Beetaloo. It goes for the South Australian Energy Minister who was kind of gushing at APR, and he was almost like the kind of therapist for the gas industry, when he said they must feel like they're under siege because everyone's criticising them, and he promised that the SA Labor would remain a resolute partner and would speak truth to people who want to argue for your demise. So it's almost like Jerry Maguire, mm-hmm. like you complete me.
0: It's <laughs> <just> absolutely
2: <laughs> gushing. Mm.
0: Uh, Patrick Lisa Cox had a really interesting story this week um, in the Guardian about the middle arm development in the Northern Territory. What was that about?
3: Yeah, this is a port development which the Albanese government had taken a one and a half billion dollar stake in. And it was sort of hidden in the last budget as a renewable or sustainable energy development. And, you know, they had talked about it being a hub for various industries, including the export of hydrogen, but hidden within documents which Lisa Cox was able to obtain through FOI showed that the government was quite aware that it would be used as a hub for the export of gas from the Beedaloo Basin and as we've indicated earlier there is a lot of potential gas reserves in that Beedaloo Basin and it kind of gives the indication the government is thinking about it as the hub for the centre of a Vastly expanded gas fossil
2: fuel export operation.
0: And the Nor Peter Dutton also appeared at APIA this week on Thursday. (laughs) They were. And what did he have to say?
2: Yeah, he's kind of going the full Tony Abbott now, Um, presenting energy policy in terms of whether Labor is for or against gas, whether it is on gas's side or not on gas's side. It's not just
3: the full Tony Abbott; it's the full Ronald Reagan, the Gipper. I don't know whether he's quite as charismatic as Ronald Reagan, though. Not sure if we can pull it off.
0: But um, he referenced I Reagan in the speech. He did yeah. reference Reagan in the Read speech. Read the quote. He, I'd, I'd like to hear your reading of it, Patrick.
3: <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I can do it in a Ronald Reagan voice, but um, he said that we need to, um, you know, when Ronald Reagan came into office in 1981, he inherited an oil crisis, referencing of course the, you know, OPEC oil boycott, and that he decontrolled the price of domestic oil and stopped the government from putting ceilings on pricing productions, and he did all the Despite you know people warning him die fall out from it all, and he said he let freedom solve the problem through the magic of the marketplace. You can just imagine that in Ronald Reagan's voice. I believe in the magic of the marketplace.
0: The magic
2: of the marketplace went all marketplace. I know. He also railed against Labour for ripping up funding for gas exploration, for withdrawing financial support for gas infrastructure and for allocating almost $10 million to activists to wage lawfare on gas projects, by which I believe he means the Environmental Defender's Office and Environmental Justice Australia. He's now calling the safeguard mechanism a carbon tax, three times bigger than Julia Gillard's, when obviously it's a coalition policy, just tweaked so it actually works. And he's accusing Labor of renewable zealotry. I don't know what
3: You just means. don't know where to start with some I don't, of this like, stuff. What like, do you like, do? You know, like, what do you do? Well, there's a huge difference, obviously, between where America found itself in 1981 and where Australia is now. We're a massive exporter of gas to all around the world. At that point, the US was relying on massive imports from, from overseas to fuel its domestic industry and cars. You know, what Ronald Reagan did in 1981... Has absolutely nothing to do with what is the position. No. Australia. And also, you know, we've got the whole climate issue as well. Like, exactly. you know, and do you even, want to talk about that? Yeah. Even
2: looking at what he's doing now, we're just back to the same old peak contradiction, where the coalition sort of says, "Oh, but oh, yes, we have to reduce emissions," and then advocates every possible policy that would do the exact opposite to that. I mean, I don't know. It's just the same inflammatory binary. Arguments, you know, why they're doing it? Because power prices are high, and if you're not on the side of gas, you know, I mean that even that doesn't make sense because gas is expensive. However, you know that will be where they're going politically with this. But it's just so irresponsible but also and arguing so silly
3: against market intervention, but also on the grounds of price is ridiculous because even Treasury and AMO have indicated that mm. those interventions have brought down Bought wholesale down prices. prices by almost half.
0: As you said, Lenore, we've been here before, but the country's changed.
2: Will it work this
0: time? I
2: hope not. I think people do understand that we have to do something about the climate crisis. I think the last election showed that that is a much broader understanding in the community than the, maybe the then coalition understood or or recognised. However, cost of living is biting. Simplistic slogans can be powerful. I think not, but I can see the political strategy. I
3: think a big difference this time around is that we're in a much different economic place. So the oil companies and the gas companies are making windfall profits, record profits off the back of basically in higher prices worldwide caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So there's no great sympathy for the oil and gas companies amongst consumers who are paying through the nose for energy. But also I don't think the companies are willing to get on board on this one. Mm, Peter mm. Dutton has made this rallying cry for them all to, you know, get involved and start speaking out. But they're pretty happy with things, how things are going, to be honest, and, and they've they just got to leave pass through, yeah. you know, the PRRT and not exactly. having a particularly strong thing coming through. So I don't think they'll be rushing to get on board with Peter Dutton. You won't see the kind of protests with Gina Reinhardt and Twiggy hugging and, um, you know, protesting against the PRRT. No. It's, you know, it's a different time, I think.
0: Next, two more weeks of our succession obsession. Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. This month marks Guardian Australia's 10th anniversary, so we're putting on a special public event to celebrate. If you live in Sydney, come join us on Thursday the 25th of May to hear directly from Guardian Australia editors and journalists as they unpick the biggest moments of the past 10 years and let you in on what we have in store for the future. Tickets are selling fast, so search Guardian Birthday and Seymour Centre on Google or find us on the Seymour Centre website. You can also watch the live stream of the event at Guardian Australia's YouTube page. See you there. And now we come to what we can't get out of our head, which is still Succession. But this is the second last week for those who have not caught up or are not as obsessed as we are. And Patrick is very, very behind in the Succession watching. So uh, sorry, Patrick, but
3: that's okay.
0: We're going to drag in Miles Herbert, our wonderful producer. Miles, what? could you not get out of your head about this week's episode?
1: Well, I think all of it, I found it all very, very confronting. Also, being kind of the token American, watching the country (laughs) dissent democracy kind of die on TV, built up a lot of anxiety. But I think for me, I just couldn't get Roman out of my head this week. He was at his most annoying. And the thing that just I haven't been able to get out of my head is whenever Shiv or anyone tried to add any... Rationalism or reality to the discussion about the election that was playing out on TV in this episode, Roman would just yell false flag as loud as he could. There was a, a moment where a group of protesters basically firebombed a voting election counting center. One report about a fire in Milwaukee, initially thought to have been caused by an electrical failure... But now there are claims and some counterclaims. And they were trying to work out who was responsible, what the right angles were, how they were supposed to cover it. And Roman just kept screaming. False flag. False flag, false flag. Nice try. To a point where Shiv has to say, Roman, you can't do that.
0: False flag, People could be.
1: You, you can't
2: just you say false flag, flag. False every flag time you don't fucking false agree flag. with something. <gasps>
1: Whenever, you know, your version of reality is pushed up against, you can't just scream false but it flag. it turns mm. out... He can. And what I found the most depressing is that what the show and ultimately what we've learned over the last five or six years is sometimes... If you just yell loud enough, it works, mm. it works.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- you just mentioned Shiv being rational. At times she did seem to be the only rational person in the room kind of trying to defend the country. and Also her own interests at the same time. And so her, yeah. yeah, yeah, she's not perfect. <laughs> uh, but what really got me, and there was lots of things that were pretty depressing about this episode, was that they just called her hysterical when she was trying to, you know, make a rational case mm. Mm. for how they should cover the news and then said, oh, you're just emotional because you broke up with your boyfriend. No, I think it's because you broke up with your boyfriend. And it was so just correct. like the definition of gaslighting and mm. yet it worked and that just got me. What about you, Lenore? So from the definition
2: of gaslighting to the definition of cynicism, Mm. you know, having helped achieve this truly terrible election result, having overridden every basic journalistic principle, having blatantly interfered in his news station and the country's kind of sitting there counting the horrific consequences. Roman takes a call from the new president-elect and then he reclines back in his chair and he says, we just made a night of good TV. We just made a good night of TV.
0: Nothing happens. Things do happen. Mm. Mm. Oh, it hurt, didn't it? It was horrible. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gab. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, and thanks, Miles. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to read more on this topic, I really recommend you check out Adam Morton's column, which is always enlightening. This week, it's called "The Gas Industry Should Be Transparent About Its Future, So Should MPs and the Media." And do also check out Lisa Cox's story on the middle arm development. We'll put links to both of those on the full story page. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. Have a great weekend. We'll, We'll be back next week in our 10th anniversary week. So listen out for lots of interesting things and check out the site to help us celebrate.